again, I think um, I'm really grateful to my friend Beth who um, gave us these uh, CDs that have all of this music on it, and I think uh, they have worked out really well for us this morning. So um, uh, I'm looking forward to being able to use them in the weeks to come. Well, for our message this morning, we are in 1 Kings, and I would ask that you turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. It's the very end of chapter 16 of 1 Kings, and then the very beginning of chapter 17, we kind of skip a verse, and then if you um, look at that, you'll you'll see why. It's just a little um, verse about uh, Jericho. But we're going, to, we're going to read from here, and then I'm going to kind of give you a little background about 1 Kings in general, so you kind of understand where we're coming from. But I'd like for us to stand this morning, if you can find it in your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 33, and then 17, 1 to 6. And of course, as with all of our texts from this series, I'm going to start with John 3:16 this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 1 Kings 16, 29 to 33, 17, 1 to 6. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain, <clears throat> nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord Jesus. Articulate the Father's heart through my voice and let the Holy Spirit breathe, breathe new life to all of us, opening our ears to hear the message of God. Amen. You may be seated. When we left Samuel, David was king. It was the very end of David's reign. And as we move into First and Second Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles. We're going to read a little more of David's reign in each of those books, but also we read about Solomon coming after David. And as we talked about last week, Solomon was the result of David's marriage to Bathsheba, 
Solomon was one of many children that David had. But Solomon was the promised king. Solomon became king after David. David actually made him king before he died so that there would be no difficult transition because David had a lot of sons. Solomon became king and immediately went to work on building the promised temple of God in the city of Jerusalem. And he started building it, and he actually was able to complete it. He built this majestic temple for God. He built himself a palace in Jerusalem as well. Solomon seems like he is going to be a king after his father David's practice. He seems like he's going to be the same kind of king. In fact, God comes to Solomon at one point and says, Solomon, what can I give you? And Solomon says, I'd like to be wise. And God says, because you've asked me for wisdom versus money or riches or any of those things, I'm going to give you all of those things plus wisdom. And so Solomon becomes one of the wisest people that we read about. It's, uh, there are lots of stories of Solomon's wisdom being handed out as a solemn judge over various disputes. And we'll talk more about Solomon and building the temple when we get into some of the other books, uh, Second Chronicles, for example. Uh, scholars believe that First, Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles were all written when Israel and Judah were under captivity to Babylon, which we'll learn about later as well. But they were written by scribes who had knowledge of all of the history of Israel. And it is a very interesting thing to read about all of the history of Israel. Uh, if you ever have a, an opportunity to spend some time in First and Second Kings, you'll see some very interesting stories that are in there. If you read through it, you will be fascinated, or at least I am fascinated by it. It became very difficult for me to kind of pick out the parts that I wanted to pull out of it. But Solomon's wisdom didn't make him infallible. Instead, Solomon develops a strong taste for being married. He gets married 700 different times, many times to make alliances with different kingdoms, which he does to keep his country strong and safe. It was the practice at that time. But one of the things that happened was, is as Solomon gathered these wives, he also began to develop a taste for some of their gods. And he began to wander away from God, the God of his father, the God of his history, the God that he was supposed to follow, the God that he intended to follow when he started out. And instead, he began to allow other forms of worship to creep in to Israel. 
And as a result of that, God said, okay, here we are again. <laughs> a king who doesn't quite follow what I've asked. A king who, who leads the people away from worshiping me. And he says, okay, Solomon, because of this, when you die, your kingdom will no longer be one kingdom. Instead, ten tribes will stay as Israel, and two tribes are going to go and become Judah. Judah would become the name of it because Judah was a bigger tribe than the other little one that stuck with Judah. And so when Solomon dies, his sons battle it out. One of them becomes king. And it's actually a really interesting story. So his son becomes king. Uh, he comes to the people and he says, well, what would you like for me? And they're like, man, your dad was hard. Solomon was tough. He, you know, building the temple and building the palace, we had to give him tons and tons of money. We had to do all this labor and hard work and things that were just really, really hard. We'd like for you to ease up on us a little. Now that you're really wealthy, you can do that. So the son goes to his, the elders and he says, you know, what should I do with the people's request? And the elders are like, you should listen. Do what they say. They're telling you the truth. And he's like, hmm, okay. And then he goes to all his buddies, the millennials of Solomon's era, and asks them, uh, what do you think I should do? And they're like, no way, man. If you ease up now, they're not going to follow you. You need to, like, push harder. You need to be like, if my dad was mean, I'm going to be ten times meaner. If you had to give my dad ten pennies, now you have to give me a thousand dollars. He's like, I'm going to push the pedal on that. And so the people say, um, yeah, we're, uh, yeah, no, you're not going to be our king. And they go off and follow another of Solomon's sons, uh, except for this one tribe, Judah and Benjamin, which really didn't have any choice because of the geographic location of Benjamin. And so this happens. Over time, Israel and Judah each have their own independent kings. And I'm telling you all of this history so you understand where we're at here when we get to Ahab and Elijah. Judah has kings that fail and don't do the right thing over and over and over again. Israel has kings that come in and don't do the right thing over and over and over again. And it's, it's almost a, um, if you read through the books and you look at what they say, so-and-so was king after so-and-so and did evil in the sight of the Lord because they didn't worship God. And it was a continual thing. The further and further the people got from the time of David, the further and further the people got from God. And then they get to Ahab. And Ahab was the worst. Ahab married someone who was a Baal worshiper and married someone who was adamantly anti-God. 
She wanted nothing to do with anything that didn't have to do with Baal, the worship that she was accustomed to. She specifically supported the Baal worshipers and the priests and prophets that worked for Baal and was opposed to all of God's prophets. In fact, she had a hand in convincing Ahab that he should kill as many of them as possible. And Elijah was a prophet. Prophets became necessary. The further and further God's people moved from God, the more and more necessary it was for God to have a voice into what was happening. And so he spoke to prophets. And he said, hey, tell that king, no, it's a bad idea. So we find Elijah. Elijah comes to King Ahab and says, guess what? You are really, really making God mad. And because you are making God mad, God has said that there will be no rain. There will be no dew even until I actually tell God that it's okay to do that. And that's exactly what happened. So here's Ahab becoming more and more corrupt and evil, spending more and more of his time worshiping Baal, setting up temples to Baal in God's country. And here's Elijah, faithful, And for the moment, he's living in a ravine. Eventually, the brook will dry up, and he has to go and find another place to stay. God sends him to a widow who says she only has a little bit of food left. And as long as she feeds Elijah, she continues to have enough to feed them all, her, her son, and Elijah. God is faithful in this moment to Elijah. It looks like Ahab is the one who's succeeding. It looks like Ahab is the one who is making the most of this. Ahab is the one who's killing all of the prophets. Ahab is the one who's setting up new things, new temples, and making it possible for the Baals to be worshipped. And it looks like Elijah is not prospering. Elijah, who is living in the wilderness and then is living with a widow of all people. But in all of that, God is faithful. God feeds Elijah. God takes care of Elijah. And ultimately, Elijah has a major showdown with the prophets of Baal. And when he does, God shows up. The prophets of Baal are no more. They're annihilated. And God brings rain. Elijah stood up in the face of evil. And it looked as though 
what he had said was going to impact him in the most difficult way. That he was going to be the one to pay for it. But in the end, Ahab got the short end of the stick. Because God is faithful. God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. And I think most of what we read in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, these are stories of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And they are stories of the kings of a long time past. And it may seem hard to connect those things with what's happening in our world and what's happening with us. But the reality is, the picture that we are being drawn is one of God's faithfulness to his people, of God's continued faithfulness to his people, even in enemy territory, even in a place where they should feel safe. They can rest in God's faithfulness when that territory no longer seems safe at all. And that's kind of what we have. We're in a place where so much of what we do as a church seems hard right now. But God is faithful. And James even tells us in James chapter 5, James says Elijah was a human being, even as we are. Even as we are. James still feels a long way back to us, but James was Jesus' brother, and James is telling the church of Jesus Christ in the times where they live, under the Roman Empire where the Romans are killing them off, he says Elijah was a human being, even as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Elijah was a man just like us. Elijah was a human being just like we are. And Elijah's prayers produced action on God's part. Our prayers are effective too. If we are faithful, God is faithful. God has promised that if we faithfully serve him, if we are faithful in all that we do, that he will bless us. Blessings doesn't look like big fancy houses or big cars. Blessing looks like enough. Blessing looks like a daily bread. Blessing looks like forgiveness. Blessing looks like the ability to keep moving, even when things really seem challenging. And so we see God's love for Elijah. We see 
the way in which God continues to move in the world of his people, in the nation of his people, even when the king is adamantly opposed to him. Because you see, at the end of the day, God has a promise for the children of Israel, for this nation that is fractured and separated from him. He has a promise of redemption that is coming. They don't know what it looks like. They don't even necessarily know why they need it 100%, but they know that it is coming. God keeps telling them through the prophets, and he keeps showing him them through his faithfulness to them in these times of evil and opposition. So again, as we have been doing every week in this series, I will remind you of what it looks like to say that the love of God is found in every page of Scripture. Because what does it mean to say God loves? God loved us enough to create us, to form us from the dust. God loved us enough to let us fail, to let us choose our own way over God's to let us chain ourselves to sin and defeat and heartbreak and sorrow and death. God loved us enough to provide a rescue, a way back, through wanderers, murderers, adulterers, defaulters, promise breakers, foreigners, strangers, and lovers. God loved us enough to show us mothers, judges, kings, and prophets who loved and spoke for God and kept reminding us of the promise of redemption. God loved us enough to show us how evil and wrong continually mess things up and how obedience to God fosters holiness and bestows blessing. God loved us enough to send us Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, to preach and live peace, grace, hope, joy, and love. God loved us enough to see Jesus rejected, to see him die, to see him buried, God loved us enough to raise Jesus from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to remind us of all we have in him and empower us to live like him. And God loved us enough to want us to live like Jesus, an abundant life infused with all the fruit of the Spirit, redeemed, free, loved. Yet God loved us enough to still let us choose our destiny God loved us enough to promise the hope of forever, of resurrection from the dead, and judgment. God loved us enough. God loves us enough. God will always love us enough. For God so loved the world. God loves you. And God wants you to know it. God wants you to live in it. God wants you to be able to love others because you know you are loved. And God's love is expressed to us every week, most tangibly, as we gather at this his table. The son who died and yet lives gave everything so we could know the depth of God's love. So come, drink the wine, eat the bread. Know you are loved. God loves you. Go love the world with him.